So, Matt, I went to Brighton this weekend. Uh, bear in mind, this isn't going to be the Brighton hour for anyone listening. We're going to do another episode uh, later on in the week to talk about uh, my experience at Brighton Tattoo Convention. But one thing I can definitively say is that Brighton is like the spawn point for Matt Lauder clones. Like, it is the small beanie capital of the UK. I can't say they're Matt Lauder clones. I'm just a clone of them. I'm just very generic. Uh, you know, this has been a problem I've had for, had for a while. I mean, you know, I have basically dressed like this for a long time. Um, but, you know, it's it's. I don't have a monopoly on uh, on this general vibe, obviously. I had, you know, I had someone completely steal my identity and dress up like me and read my stuff out. That was quite full on. Copied my tattoos on his hands. We should do an episode about that in future. You can Google it if anyone's <laughs> listening. There were some articles about it in The Guardian. I mean, um, it's a, it's, it's a even, great lead-in to talk about stealing people's tattoo designs, but we'll save that for another yeah. episode. But even before, yeah, even before then, when I was um, years ago, I opened up the Metro, uh, you know, the, the free paper in London, and there was a photograph of some people swing dancing at a like rockabilly night, and I could, I honestly swore it was me. Uh, even though it wasn't me. So look, I'm just a very generic uh, looking dude, really, unfortunately. Like at one stage, I think I was looking at like a jumper or something and a guy walked past me in kind of like a peach color French chore coat, a small beanie and very dark, thick glasses. And I nearly broke my neck with whiplash. It was like, did Matt show up and not tell me? He was like the same height as you as well. Yeah, look, you know, middle-aged uh, tattoo people who, you know, who have lived through the, like, late 90s hardcore scene, the early 2000s, like, rockabilly and swing revival and whatever it is we're going through now, you know, this is this is unfortunately what we all look like. There is, yeah, there's only really, like, if you're into tattoos, there is only four types of people you can be. You can either be a skater you can be a hardcore punk person, you can look like Matt, or you can be like super into like goth, chains, bondage gear. And that's that's the only four things you can do if you are into tattooing. If you don't look oh, there's also the fifth type, the uh, the four lads in jeans. You can also be that type of tattoo <laughs> enthusiast. But those that's are the you. only five Yeah, that's me. That's uh it's the only five types of uh tattoo enthusiasts you can find. But yeah, I think that's 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 right. And I, you know, I um, I, I years ago uh, did a thing. Uh, was talking about how I don't think hipsters exist, and I actually got asked to go on a TV show where they were doing a sort of documentary about hipsters, and they didn't keep my contrarian opinion in the show. I got cut because I wasn't saying what people wanted them to say. I think you could accuse me of being a hipster in that general sense, but you know, if if I've been basically wearing these same clothes for a over 20 years um it, I, um, um I'll, I'll i'll take that label i don't know i mean like uh, did like hipsters are just defined as people who are actually like enthusiastic about things it seems I know. yeah that's why i don't think hipsters exist i think it's just because if you when i was when i was at uni when i was a teenager like hipsters were basically what were sort of emo kids but emo kids in the pre my chemical romance era right like p- people who had glasses and backpacks and listened to rights of spring they were hipsters and then hipsters became something you know beards and lumberjack shirts and then hipsters were um i don't know like kind of shoreditch like skinny jean rave culture just basically just means young people 
partly, or it's code varying differing degrees of a uh, varying differing degrees of null fielding, pretty much. Yeah, uh, but look, I'm not you know n- not not one of us is a unique snowflake, and um and I'm certainly not a un- I'm certainly not a unique snowflake. Yeah, yeah, but. Yeah, speaking of unique snowflakes, <laughs> you are welcome to the show for unique snowflakes. You're very welcome to Beneath the Skin, the show about the history of everything told through the history of tattooing. I am one of your hosts, Thomas O'Mahony. And as you heard, I am joined once again by my esteemed co-host, Dr. Matt Lauder. Matt, say hello to the people. Hello, hello. Sorry if this episode's out a little bit late. It's my fault. Um, I wasn't at Brighton this weekend because um, my father was taken ill. He's okay now. Um, but Thomas was... So I've got now got loads and loads of books that I was meant to be selling <laughs> at the convention piled up in my office. Um, but, you know, family comes first. So I, I hope you had a nice time, Tom. I did. I did. I had a fantastic time. And I hope you enjoyed arranging all your unsold books to sub- support your leaky roof. Yeah. God. Yeah. Other than my dad being ill, I also had a huge um, gushing water leak through my ceiling. So it's been a great weekend. But I am now happy and delighted to come back and talk about talk about tattooing with you again um and uh, yeah we've we've been doing this like you know endless series of of uh of tattooing in japan um people already have listened to hopefully the first two parts proper our interview that we put out with um benoit robitaille about tattooing in ukiyo-e prints um and yeah today i want to cover um I want to cover basically the kind of period around about the 1850s. So from the kind of Meiji Restoration period uh, right the way up until maybe World War II or so, very roughly. And then we'll do one more episode talking about tattooing in Japan uh, now. Before we do that, though, sorry, before we do that, um, something I forgot to mention in the last episode, uh, and it was too good for me not to have mentioned um, it's my favourite tattoo from pre, uh, pre, you know, um, woodblock style, ukiyo-e style Japanese tattooing. Um, this is also in a book that we mentioned in the interview with um, Benoit, this book, Tattoos as Punishment by Eric Shahan. Um, we talked about that in, in the episode of Benoit, but he, he republishes this amazing tattoo image um, from... Um, uh, about uh, 1750, so back in that period we were talking about last time. Um, and the, t- the tattoo on this person's arm, um, basically it's a whole sleeve. He republishes, I'll show Thomas. He republishes this sleeve of like kanji characters, right? Okay. Uh, and those and those kanji characters uh, say, um, do not piss here. <laughs> Urinating in this place is forbidden, right? This is from a book called Idiotic Lectures. <laughs> um, and this guy had on his arm in, uh, as Eric describes it, thick, bold kanji from the top of the shoulders to the tip of the fingers. Um, urinating in this place is forbidden. And it turns out, right, so this is obviously a pretty hilariously vulgar tattoo, but it's based on a story from the 47 Ronin, Um Again, quoting Eric, a number of samurai were out drinking and a high-ranking official heard one person by the name of Sasaki was an expert calligrapher and so he set up a blank folding screen to get him to write a poem about spring flowers. Instead, he wrote, don't piss here. As the master was enraged, another poet took up the brush and added um, some letters below, making the screen read, 
Here at this mountain, the flowers don't need your pee. Together they make the kind of uh, make a, make a poem, and the master was delighted and made the screen a household treasure. So, um, so this person gets a gets a um, uh, a tattoo that says "Don't piss here," uh, but it's it's part of a beautiful story about you know the fragility of nature. Mm-hmm. Don't don't <laughs> don't don't piss on some lovely wildflowers. They don't need your uh, urea. But exactly, <laughs> you're not helping. So this is uh, this is all by way of saying you know. Um, we talked about how this um, style of of what we call contemporary Japanese tattooing really dates from about the early 1800s. But when the, you know, but tattooing has always been a, a bit more diverse than that in Japan. And one thing that we should probably say going into this episode, obviously the previous episode focused on kind of around the Edo period and what we're going into now is the period called Meiji Restoration. So to set the scene of what is happening in Japan at this time is you are seeing the end of the Tokugawa Shogunate and you're also seeing the restoration of the powers in the emperor and this is kind of the birth of imperial Japan and Japan transforming from a feudal society to being a market-oriented society. So you have Japan opening up more so to the rest of the world. You're having more influence from the rest of the world coming into Japan. And you're seeing a definitive shift in social structures as well. Yeah, and I think it's we've sort of alluded to this. We talked about it in the in every episode. We talked about it in the episode about the Ainu as well. It's worth, if people don't know this story, just maybe laying it out in more detail than we have done before. So again, as we've said, Japan was closed off to the West for about 250 years um, from about 1600. In the middle of the 18th century, in the 19th century, in the middle of the 1800s, we end up obviously in the European kind of age of sale, you know, um, and the age of empire um, where there's a scramble for Africa. Um, in the decades after the American Revolution, the United States is also starting to kind of exert itself um, uh, on the continent of of the, of the Americas, and then is also you know setting out its stall around the world as a global superpower. And basically, in 1853, under the um, command of a captain called Commodore Matthew Perry, and whenever I hear about Matthew Perry, I always have to think of Matthew Perry from Friends. <laughs> um, what if Chandler went to Japan? Yeah. Um, basically sent a squadron of ships to Japan and in what is a pretty baller move actually um sent ashore an emissary with a white flag gave it to a representative of the shogun and basically said wave this white flag and surrender or we're going to fuck you up we're going to invade you so these get these this gets called in in the history of Japan in Japanese text at the time the black fleet um, these are big iron hulk, you know, warships, basically. Japan has, um, as again, as we said before, basically a kind of medieval level of society. They have, um, you know, samurai who, who haven't had to fight anyone for 200 years. Uh, they don't have um, metal ships. They don't have a navy. They don't even, I mean, they have an army, so to speak, but the um, there have been rebellions. The country hadn't been entirely at peace, but... They had really had no choice, and they realized very quickly that it was integrate, you know, sur- basically surrender or be colonized. And they chose, um, they chose surrender. 
uh, they chose basically to to open up to the West, but then realized they had to become Western very, very quickly. They had to appear as Western as possible or else risk being colonized. And so that basically led to a, about a decade, a decade and a half after 1853 of huge amount of um, social upheaval. So I want to read uh, here quickly just from um, uh, an article about what's happening in that period. It's a great article uh, f- uh, called Edo in 1968, 1868, The View from Below, published by an academic called M. William Steele in 1990. Uh, and basically, I think it's a good uh, it's a good kind of account of of what's happening because this this panic, you know, um, as as Steele says in this article, it's often kind of talked about the Meiji Restoration. The Meiji Restoration is the putting of the imperial family back on the throne. Has often been portrayed as quite a soft revolution in a smooth, if not rational manner. Feudalism was replaced by a centralized nation state, right? But Obviously, it's pretty traumatic, right? If your entire social fabric is changing and and everything about your life is being changed, about how your country operates, about the relationship to technology, art, culture, clothing, because the royal family very quickly started wearing European dress, their armies switched over to European style military uniforms, um, you end up with a lot amount, a lot of urban uh, and rural unrest, right? Um, and in fact, again, to quote Steele here, um, Edo suffered major bouts of mob violence uh, beginning in 1866. Rice shops, pawn shops, sake shops, and the merchants who prof- profited from foreign trade were raided and wrecked. Um, people were quick to place, place the blame for their suffering on the Tokugawa government. In late 1866, a piece of graffiti was found pasted on the door of the city commissioner's office. Owing to high prices, goods are in short supply and able officials are sold out. Um, Edo commoners were not only aware of the economic ills of their society, they were keen observers to the political scene as well. And they essentially are, um, you know, seeing their whole entire social life like up, turned upside down. There are riots, there are military crackdowns, there are um, uh, decrees, there are, um, you know, Attempted small uprisings, most particularly the Satsuma uprising, and lots also, and lots of problems, and also as well, uh, displaced officials from the shogunate fleeing to Hokkaido to trying to form a separate state of Izo. Right, exactly, and like you know, all these power structures which had been sort of bubbling under in Japan for centuries, um, with these centuries of feudal war. Of course, in this new society, there's all this jostling for power and jostling for cultural status, all at the same time as as dealing with the immense cultural changes that are happening when you know the entire structure of your society is upended. And it, I thought it was interesting to start off t- there talking about the merchants, you know, having their shops burned down because this is really where we talked about in the last couple of episodes the class system of pre Meiji. Japan had merchants wealthy but lower class. And the opening up of trade to Europe puts them in an incredibly powerful position in a way, uh, and the dissolution of the old order, basically, in a way that, that, that really changed the, um, the social dynamics from top all the way to the bottom. So, okay, what does this have to do with tattooing? Well, the first attempt um, to ban tattoos actually came 
before the Meiji Restoration. Um, uh, there was a decree as early as 1812, um, basically to try and say, look, uh, tattooing is this, you know, um, again, as we talked about, slightly kind of looked down upon practice. It's also associated with the Ainu and with people in Okinawa, um, in Ryukyu, uh, another Japanese island. And so the first edicts were kind of as early as 1812. But, you know, more or less, tattooing was sort of stumbling along fairly um, uninterrupted. So this first order, um, I'll quote it here, 1812. Um, The order says, quote, Of late, some careless people have been displaying what is known as horimono, carved designs or tattoos on their flesh. They're carving various and sundry designs as well as words and such all over the body. The application of ink or colouring to the cuts is the problem at hand. Of late, there's also been a great number of those who perform this sort of carving seen and about. Hereafter, let it be known that clearly carving tattoos, not only on the arms and legs, but also the rest of the body, is inappropriate. And then a bit later on, um, in the 13th, 13th year of the Bunse era, so in the 1820s, um, another rule book says the fashion of late is to, ha- to have illustrations tattooed all over the body to the extent one can hardly see the skin. Um, they keep trying to publish this law, um, but no one's really paying attention to it. Right? <laughs> and but this, but you know, this is like there's two points I want to make. It's like one when you have a, a I suppose you could call it can't call it anything else other than a revolution and the state is then reformed in some sort of new image how are you going to apply laws when no one knows who really holds power when you have like right suddenly japan is centralized who like do you have a centralized police force do you have a centralized punitive system for breaking laws but also in addition to you know the, the edicts around the banning of tattooing as well notable around this time that in japan quite a lot of old castles were also just completely destroyed as well as yeah. in and, an adli- and and people fled edo right like ledo ed um in the space of less than 7 years edo lost half of its population of more than a million people so edo was one of the biggest um, cities in the world um you know it, it basically the capital had been moved there um to it was a small fishing village and then it grew up to be have a million people in in the 1850s right um, but it, 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 over the course of the 1860s, like more than 300,000 people um, were left, right? Like huge amounts of, um, of, of fleeing to the, the rural areas, Edo in ruins, little, ex- this is again from Steele, little expected of its future as a national ca- capital. Um, so the country's kind of a mess and it, it's, it's almost, you know, struggling to kind of figure out what it's going to do. Um, it's renamed, the city's renamed Tokyo, uh, essentially um, in the aftermath of an, of an earthquake, as often happens. And um, very, very quickly, you know, the, the powers that be are, are, are struggling to adapt. One of the things that happens, and again, we mentioned this, and I won't go into too much detail, we've mentioned it already, but is that um, the Japanese are kind of adopting or at least nodding towards European racial categorization. Um, racism had existed, of course, as we've mentioned in Japan, but 
Um, one of the ways that they could defend themselves against colonization was to present themselves as closer in the kind of scientific racist evolutionary paradigm to white people than to uh, other Asians and certainly to Africans. So that resulted in, for example, again, as we talked about in the Ainu episode, increased racialization of the Ainu. But it also meant suppressing things that the powers that be felt made Japanese people different from Europeans. And one of those things is, is tattooing. Now, tattooing is a problem for the European scientific racists because, um, for example, Henry Balfour, who was the first curator of the Pitt Rivers Museum, in his book, The Evolution of the Decorative Art, he basically said, you can tell how you know cultures start off naked, then they begin to tattoo, the more developed they become, in inverted commas, um, I'm paraphrasing here, not quoting directly. Uh, the, the more developed they become, the more ornate their tattoos become until they start wearing clothes and then they're civilized. Because there is this idea that, you know, there's a kind of hierarchy of races with white people at the top. Um, when the Japanese are encountered and, and, and their tattoos, and particularly these big, beautiful, full body tattoos that we're talking about, as well as their other art practices, but tattooing in particular are encountered, doesn't fit very neatly into the um, into the sort of standard racial characterization of, of tattoo history. That's one of the reasons why um, essentially in 1872, so, so the, Matthew Perry showed up in 1853, there's a proper political um, restoration in 1868. The first ban post-Meiji is 1872, where basically the government um, in Tokyo say, we do not want anyone who's Japanese to be tattooed because, you know, it basically makes us look bad. It's all about PR. It's all about PR. And it, it, it plays in quite well as well with Japan's transition into being an industrial power as well. And you'll see this as we are, maybe it's a little bit earlier talk about this now, but as we transition from the 19th to the 20th century with the rapid acceleration of industrialization and the introduction of mercantile capitalism into Japan. Obviously, if you want to become an industrial power, you need a workforce. You need people who will work in factories and produce things. And that also helped fuel Japan's expansion outside of its own borders as well, both culturally and militarily. And there's the saying in 1895 that to enrich the country and strengthen the military. So you have those two things going hand in hand where with Japan right. was closed off for so long, you had Japan only really cared about Japan and suddenly now they have to compete with other industrial powers at the time. The, you know, the Americans will soon come, the British, the Dutch, and then you have like leading into stuff like, you know, the Sino-Japanese war and the, the Russia-Japanese war, war. Yeah. So, I mean, but because they haven't, you know, they have no, industry at this point right um uh, so what they offer the world in terms of trade is their artisanal goods all these things like prints furniture silk clothing all the things that have been sold you know through though through nagasaki uh, into europe um in in sort of low quantities and into china into in through the dutch um east india company we're now, you know, flooding into Japan, and it's no coincidence, really, that the first documented tattoo shop in the Western world is the year after 
recorded for a tattoo, you know, a tattoo are sort of listing themselves publicly as a tattoo artist is Martin Hildebrandt. Um, Hildebrandt was a German immigrant to the United States. We should do a whole episode about him individually and we will do we in the future. That's all stage. Um, but basically he, he claimed, um, I haven't been able to confirm this yet. We've been looking, um, to try and confirm it. Uh, doesn't seem to be hundred percent sure, but he claimed at least to have been on board the fleet that Matthew Perry's fleet. He was certainly in the American Navy. Um, he claimed to have, late, you know, many years later, he claimed to have been on those first trips to Japan. In 1854, he's listed in the New York street directory as a tattooer. He's working in a saloon bar in New York City. Now, as we said in the previous episodes, there were plenty of other tattooers before then. Tattooing didn't come from Japan. But what happens in the aftermath of Japan's opening is that huge interest in tattooing um, starts coming up in the west because everything japanese is fashionable um the uh you know as early as 1873 um so just three or four years after the restoration proper castle magazine and english magazine said that japanese tattooing has reached a high state of perfection in our own country tattooing for us for a long time been commonly practiced among certain classes of people tattooing not just for sailors 1873 um chiefly the poorer and as such are banded together in large numbers and are at certain times cut off from intercourse with society that such freaks of folly are not confined to these classes however is fully shown by the evidence given in that recent cause celebra that's the titchbourne trial we'll do an episode about that um but has also given much excitement in this country so basically japanese tattooing comes to like define tattooing or art tattooing in the West, um, particularly amongst wealthy travelers, right? Because um, there's this there's this sense that, you know, sailor tattooing and, and, and stuff is all very poor and, 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 and pricked away and small scale. But these Japanese guys, they have huge scale, beautiful tattoos. Um, in 1869, um, which is again, just after the restoration, um, the first British royal family member goes to Japan, um, Prince Alfred, Duke of Edinburgh, um, second son of of uh, Queen Victoria. Um, and he was tattooed. He was tattooed in 1869. Uh, and then uh, after him, every member of the British royal family, uh, up until we think Prince Edward, or Edward VIII, who I don't think was tattooed, he, he wrote home and saying, Tattooing was illegal. He probably shouldn't do it. But basically, between 1869 and 1920, every single member of the British royal family who went to Japan um, was tattooed. So, including George V, um, who was at that time uh, uh, Prince George, his brother Albert Victor, um, the Duke of Clarence. Uh, basically, yeah, every single member of the British royal family pretty much was tattooed in Japan. Um, and this is because, right, like, it's cool. It's trendy. It's it's like mm. the new cutting edge, like talking about hipsters earlier on. It's the cool shit, man. Never right? been like, as more acceptable than ever. You've been to Japan like you've been to Japan and like this is the this is A proves you've been. You know, we, we there's been a long history of pilgrimage tattooing. Um Edward the Seventh had been uh tattooed in eighteen sixty two um in Jerusalem, you know, getting a pilgrimage tattoo, but 
Mm-hmm. So it proved you would bin, but also it was beautiful. It was yeah, yeah, expensive. Yeah. It was like trendy as fuck. You know, it was like kind of getting. It was like kind of getting. I don't know if it's quite the right analogy, but it would be like getting. You know, some like super hip, uh, like Balenciaga tattoo or something. You know, like the kind of trendiest, coolest shit in yeah, the world. And it kind of it dovetails like in perfectly with. You know, the Victorian obsession with Orientalism as well, that like there is this some sort of kind of mystical, cool quality to things from the Orient, to things from the East, that like it also is a status symbol as well of having been able to afford to go to Japan, be able to afford to purchase, you know, stuff like silks and like being able to afford to travel and get a tattoo as well. Hey, are you enjoying the show? If you really like Beneath the Skin and you want to help support us, you can do so on Patreon. For little as five quid a month, you can help make this show possible, help us buy research materials. So if you like the show and you want to support us, consider kicking us a few quid a month and you'll get everything from bonus episodes to Q&As and you can even vote on what tattoo I'll get when we reach a certain subscriber count. Matt, have you got anything to say? You should really definitely uh, fund the Patreon because tattoo history is massive, right? Deep, wide, complicated. We're covering some big hit topics on the main feed, but on the Patreon subscriber-only feed, we'll be getting into some really more interesting, niche, deep topics you don't want to miss out on. And honestly, the chance to kind of decide what Thomas gets on his body is probably just a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Subscribe, chuck us a few quid. Don't miss out on the chance to ruin Thomas's body forever. Everyone knows that tattoo aftercare is one of the most important steps in getting a new tattoo. We all want our fresh new tattoos to heal as easily and hassle-free as possible so we can show them off to the world. That's why Saniderm's here to help. Driven by science and innovation, Saniderm products have been thoroughly tested and used by doctors and tattoo artists alike for over 10 years. Saniderm brings cutting-edge technology to make your tattoo healing process a breeze. No more messing around with cleaning and plastic every few hours with Saniderm's amazing range of aftercare products. I personally have used Saniderm to heal my tattoos in the past, and they made what used to be a daily process of setting reminders on my phone to clean and rewrap my tattoo into a one-step process. Their medical-grade products include aftercare balms, soaps, and my favourite, their second skin aftercare bandages. Saniderm's tattoo bandages are designed to be waterproof, breathable, and keep your new tattoo protected from whatever the elements can throw at it so you can get on with your day worry-free and confident your new tattoo will look vibrant and will heal faster. Plus, their products are all natural and ethically sourced, so you can take comfort in knowing that you're healing your tattoos with nature's finest ingredients. So next time you're in an artist's chair, why not try Saniderm, healing your tattoos the modern way so you can get on with your day. Check out the link in the description of this episode for discounts on a range of Saniderm products or for more information. Yeah, and, and this is what started off the trend. I mean... Everyone also, of course, like it's not just today that people want to copy celebrities. Royals, particularly at the time the British royal family were, yeah, they were the trendiest people in the world. People would would copy their food tastes. They'd copy their, you know, what they had at Christmas time. They'd copy their weddings. They'd copy how they dressed. Um, So they're complete trendsetters. Um, I'm sure sure George V's private friend story on Instagram would have been crazy. Yeah, exactly. Right.
So, um, again, I want to read you this. This is from the work of a guy called Noboru Koyama, who is actually a librarian at the University of Cambridge, but who's written some really great stuff, both in Japanese and English, on on uh, on these stories using Japanese sources. So, um, he describes uh, Alfred's visit as follows. The new Meiji government gave Prince Alfred a cordial reception, despite the revolutionary chaos of the Meiji rest- Restoration. For the stay of Prince Alfred, the government transformed a mansion inside the Hamagoten, a summer palace of the Shogun, into the first official palace for foreign guests, renaming it in Ryokan and refurbishing it with Kano, uh, Kano uh, Masanobu's new paintings. Prince Alfred was the um, Ryokan's first foreign guest. Keppel, who's Alfred's um, like assistant, basically, mentioned, quote, suites of apartments cur- completely furnished in European style while the walls were covered with curiously painted Japanese paper. So even there, right, you can see what's going on. We've got like, we're going to look, we, we, we're just as good as you. We've got European furniture yep. straight away for you. Just a, a big um, intercontinental dick measuring competition between uh, the wealthy. Yeah, but and also a way to kind of, again, appear I'm your equal, right? Mm-hmm. So um, a ball had been held on 10th of September 1869 at the British legation then in Yokohama in order to welcome Prince Alfred. On the following Sunday, Keppel noted that, quote, his his Royal Highness took a quiet breakfast with us this morning, approving of our curry, then went home to be tattooed. Um, And uh, Beresford, who's another one of um, Alfred's mates, he says, quote, in Tokyo... I was tattooed by the native artificers to the astonishment of Japanese and officials and nobles. For in Japan, none save the common people is tattooed. The Japanese artist designs in white upon dark, working around the skin, round the chief ornament in his scheme. Whereas the English tattooer tattoos dark upon white, using the natural skin as a background. Both methods are beautifully illustrated upon my person. So that kind of negative space idea that we're used to seeing in Japanese back prints, you know, like using a heavy black background and leaving a figure empty. You see that very quickly when European tattooers, particularly British and American uh, tattooers, start copying Japanese designs. They're using that same negative space technique a lot of the time. A lot of Southern McDonald's back pieces, for example, have that exact um, have that exact thing. So... This is just a bit of a bind, right, for the Japanese tattooer, because on the one hand, they've got all this new business from rich, wealthy travellers. On the other hand, it's technically illegal for them to be tattooing. But there is this sort of loophole. So the law basically prevents tattooing on Japanese people, but doesn't prevent tattooing by foreigners, of, of foreigners. And in fact, this sort of incentivizes, weirdly enough, Japanese artists to try and deliberately market themselves, deliberately reach out to... European travellers, um, because that's the way they were going to get business. Uh, now, the real kind of spur point for this uh, is is in 1881, when George and Albert Victor go to Yokohama. And they're sort of sailor kings. They, they, they were um, you know, young, 18, 19, 20 years old or so. R- rumors had got back to London even before they got to Japan that they'd been tattooed on the end of their noses. Um, there were photos of the boy say of oh, photos, drawings of the boy sailors um, with tattoo marks, you know, sailor tattoos all over them, published in an English caricaturing magazine called Entract. The their their um, assistant, actually the same guy, this guy Keppel, he had to write back to the 
queen and say, look, don't worry. It was just a bit of dirt on the end of their noses. They haven't got tattoos. Don't worry. But that, <laughs> that didn't last, right? Because 1881, they are tattooed. So 27th and 28th of October, 1881, the emperor invited the two princes to the palace. Um, and they record, or actually um, uh, George records, back to breakfast at 9.30, the tattooer finished our arms. He does a large dragon in blue and red, writhing down my arm in about three hours. Um, the man who did most of our party was beautifully tattooed over the whole of his body, and the effect of these Japanese drawings in various colours and curves on his glistening skin was like so much embroidered silk. Like so many of their old customs, tattooing has been abolished by law, but these two artists are allowed to come into our room here, right? So you can see again that analogy between silk and tattooing. And in fact, you know, all of these royal visitors and other wealthy visitors, they're stuffing their ships full of silk, furniture, silverware, almost to the point where you haven't got any room to bring anything else back, but you can bring a tattoo back. It's not going to take up any more room. Now, the... Guy that really claimed to have been the tattooist and who became famous in a way we'll talk about in more detail in a bit is a guy called Hori Chio. So he claimed for a couple of decades to have been the tattooer who tattooed the royal princes. Um, although Koyama doesn't seem to think he was the guy that was responsible. Uh, so the princes don't mention, but Koyama cites a contemporary um, Japanese writer called Tamabayashi Haruo saying the guy, is this, the guy who tattooed him is actually a guy called uh, Karakuza Gonta, uh, the best tattooer in, the, in Japan at the time. Um, I talked about uh, in previous episodes um, the Irizumi book by Gulick, and Gulick mentions uh, Karakuza Gonta in some detail as well. Um, whatever the truth of it, like it was Horichio who basically made hay <laughs> on this. <laughs> Um, now from what, um, from what Koyama found out is that other tattooers at the time weren't very friendly about Chio. They thought he was a bit of a chancer. He may have been too young actually to have tattooed that such an important Royal guests. Um, the, uh, like, yeah, um, he was the real Hori Chio was basically, he was a, um, uh, a guy who was born towards the end of the, um, uh, sort of shogunate period. He was born in about 1859. His real name was Miyazaki Tadashi, second son of a samurai. According to uh, uh, um, Koyama, basically other tattooists thought he was a bit of a hack. <laughs> you know, <laughs> when you hear this a lot, you see this like tattooists slagging off each other. I, I, I love um, that. Like some things just never change. Yeah, right. Tattooists slagging each other off. But Chio basically made a really good living and a name for himself tattooing um, foreigners. So he was only about 10 years old when Prince Alfred visited in 1869. He was 22 when Albert Victor and Prince George arrived. Um, but he did, as um, my friend Yoshimi Yamamoto has recently discovered, she, he, she's found his signature on photographs of some people tattooed around about that time, wealthy American visitors. So... He was he was tattooing, but basically he found himself working in a curio shop, right? In a kind of souvenir, like antique shop aimed at the Western audience in Yokohama, owned by a um a guy called Arthur and Arthur Bond, Arthur and Bond. Um 
there's a bit of a kind of soap opera subplot to this because um, it's possible that um, Arthur Bond had a affair with a, with um, a Japanese woman and then Horichio raised the child as his own. Um, he uh, Horichio then also potentially committed suicide uh, in Hokkaido in 1900. But his name, Shio's name, basically became synonymous with amazing tattooing all around the world to the point where um so he never seems to have left japan um yashimi and um koyama and and others haven't been able to find a passport or anything but you will find horichio tattooing everywhere right in london in portsmouth (laughs) um (laughs) all roads lead back to portsmouth yeah all over the place because he became famous you know he he was the sort of the most famous tattooer in the world probably alongside sutherland mcdonald in this period of the 1880s or so. And, you know, it's super interesting because whilst he didn't leave, lots of other tattooers did leave uh, because it was too difficult to make their living in in Japan. And so they went to Singapore, they went to Hong Kong, they went to Malta, they came to London, um, they uh, went to the United States as well. And some of them claimed to be Horichio, some of them had their own monikers. But it's this moment which, you know, again, it's, European travellers coming to Japan, going home, showing their mates, going, hey, I've got this cool tattoo. Where'd you get that done? Japan. I'm not travelling anytime soon. That starts the real business of professional tattooing in the urban centres of of Europe uh, and America. Because, you know, like, as I said, it's super trendy and all of a sudden it's it's profitable. You can make, if if you're a guy who's been tattooing sailors or you learned to tattoo in the army or whatever, all of a sudden you could make loads of money tattooing really rich people and Hildebrand his own particular stories of that kind you know in the 1850s it seems that he's tattooing you know in this kind of rough rough ass saloon by the 1880s he's claiming at least to be tattooing you know New York's finest so yeah and I I, I think it's also interesting that Chio is working out of this um you know out of this basically kind of souvenir shop because it was part of the experience. And in fact, he advertised, he wasn't the only one that did this, other tattooers did too, but he advertised in guidebooks in English to European travellers who came to Japan. Um, and in fact, lots of the lots of the people who by the 1880s and 90s were going to Japan were saying like, don't buy any of that shit in the sh- tourist shops because all the good <laughs> shit's gone, right? All of the, all of the China, all of the, all of the um, beautiful old Japanese stuff had gone to museums or private collections. If you wanted real Japanese art, right, you had to now go um, and get a tattoo because that was the last remaining um, authentic tattoo, uh, authentic Japanese art. So in a, um, this is amazing. This is from an edition of a a guidebook called A Handbook for Travellers, 1893. It includes an advert in one edition for uh, Arthur and Bonds, which sort of alongside all the other things that Arthur and Bonds is selling, cloisonne, silverware is listed you know horichio tattooer to the prince's tattoos here and the writer of that um handbook a guy called basil hall chamberlain says quote japan is now almost denuded of old curios some have found their ways to the museums in the country while priceless collections have crossed the sea to europe and america um 
in another magazine uh, around the same time, 1886, in the London Standard. Year by year, every ever since Nippon's been opened up to the outer world, the taste of the islanders has been deteriorating. I love this. This is sort of reverse racism, right? European models have corrupted the native eye. And the temptation to manufacture goods for the barbarian market, meaning here the Europeans, has made the once famous workmanship of the Japanese not much more honest than the countries to which most of it is sent. I mean, this, but this makes so much sense. Like this, uh, if you talk about Japan in the 20th century, this makes so much sense. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like, it, and it, it's really funny that like, the country's only really been open for like 45 years and there's already this wave of, no, we need to go back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was better before. Yeah. Well, this is, this is again, the sort of constant issue and tattooing is such a pivotal story here where Japan needs to be modern and needs to be ancient at the same time. I mean, again, there's a really hilarious tattoo thing here where... um someone's writing a British guy's writing to a magazine about like, you know, where can I get tattooed? And a correspondent writes in and says, Oh, I, you know, I, I was tattooed by Hori Chio and he told me he only uses a thousand year old ink to tattoo me, you know, the authentic Japanese way. It's like, all right, mate. Like, yeah. For those of you so at home, my head is in my hands. Yeah. So clearly these guys, uh, you know, these ja- uh, Horichio in particular, but others, um, including a guy called Hori, uh, Hori Toyo, who, who um, was actually the son of a vet who came to England, married an English woman, um, uh, and then did end up making his name in America. Like, all these guys are very good at selling themselves in a particular way to foreign audiences mm-hmm. you know um and i just love that story of this guy going oh yeah like yeah he only uses a thousand year old ink yeah sure he does sure he does um so in that, there's another a guidebook from 1906 a little bit later um called vacation days in japan and they go and visit horichio um and they so they quote here his card bears the following announcement patronized by hrh princes albert victor and george having testimony of Marquises, Counts, and other particular families. This circular always accompanies his card. As my art of tattooing has been frequently noticed in the American and European press, I had a taste of drawing from a very young age. I entered the Tokyo Fine Arts Academy, and after graduating in the drawing course, I studied assiduously the art of tattooing. But not being satisfied with the common crude works of the profession, I devised new methods and attained the highest degree of perfection, as to minuteness and artistic effects, which will delight and surprise to behold. My object is not in making money by the work, but I covet to spread art all over the world and promote my reputation. Of course, again, yeah, mate, okay, I'm not doing it for the money. All tourists who come to Japan from Europe and America are solicited to patronise my work as it may serve as a memento of a pleasant sojourn or visit to the fair land of the rising sun at such and such a period of one's age. Um. The other, there's one other story before I move on from Horichio, um, and I don't have the word for word to hand, but it's the story of a, an American socialite called um, Amy Crocker. You can read about her in my book. She's one of the 21 tattooed subjects. Um, she was certainly visited Chio's studio in Japan, and she talks about <laughs> about essentially um, hitting on his... He was like a bit of a Lothario, and he hit on his <laughs> customers' wives. Uh- 
Um, so she was quite taken with him. She was a bit of a playgirl herself, and uh, yeah, apparently he used to make it a bit of a a bit of a moment of pride to like if if his customers were assholes, like his French or British or whatever customers, he chat them up, he chat up their wives, <laughs> steal their wives. Incredible, incredible. Yeah. So um, we 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 um we have because this is an era of photography and because. You know, there are Europeans who were tattooed by Chio and by other Japanese artists. We have this a lot of this work in photography. And even we actually have some of his prints and designs have survived. Uh, there was an artist called um, uh, Sugahiru Fujita, Leonard Fujita, who basically moved from Japan to Paris. But he was a big tattoo fan and he ended up basically collecting and saving a lot of um, Horichio's work. And through Fujita's collection, some of um, Horichio's stuff has ended up in a museum in the Akita Prefecture in Japan. And there's a few other pieces in private collections. There was an amazing book put out a few years ago um, by State of Great Grace Press in the United States. And Yoshimi Yamamoto's just put out a book only in Japanese um, with some more images of Horichio's stuff. But he was basically doing, you know, lots of stuff for European travelers. So butterflies, um, snakes monograms so getting basically kind of your you know your family crest um tattooed on you but he was also doing some some bigger work stuff too and there there there's quite a lot of photographs published at the time and drawings taken from photographs throughout the 1880s and 90s into the early decades uh of of tattoos that that Hori Chio had had done and like it's just just brilliant beautiful work and it's what everyone certainly the wealthy wanted to copy right and yeah, I'm I'm looking at like some of the pictures on Google right now, and it like it is very interesting. You start to see that blending between like Japan and then the stuff that Sutherland McDonald is doing. Like it's very, it becomes very apparent where that cultural exchange has happened. Right, and of course, Japanese tattooing is adapting in in the other direction too. Right, to to become more refined, to incorporate some of the coloured inks that were being developed um, in Europe. And there is a real cultural exchange that happens all the way through, you know, right into up to the Second World War. Sailor Jerry famously is sharing techniques and ideas with Japanese tattooers whilst being horrifically racist about Japanese people. We'll talk yeah. about that in a future episode. But um, yeah, it's, you know, um, it, it's a real moment of cultural exchange. And because tattooing is not part of mainstream Japanese culture, it's not quite appropriation in the same way as, say, white people getting a Mori tattoo or a Samoan tattoo or a, uh, um, a, a tattoo of a, a particular kind of um, ethnographic tribal religious grouping would be. It really is an art form, and the Japanese themselves see it that way. You know, that's really important to to understand. And, it, you know, it's something that we're going to talk about in the next episode as well as we talk mo- move into the kind of modern contemporary era, how Japanese tattooing became the probably second most prevalent form of tattooing in the world next to, you know, American traditional. That like how these two styles which seem from a philosophical level diametrically opposed to each other are now placed, you know, like side by side as if you ask someone what like can you describe a tattoo or what do you think of when you think of a tattoo, it's either going to be mostly American traditional or Japanese. Right. And um, I went to Nagasaki in uh, uh, the summer to go and look at a series of tattoo flashbooks that were drawn by an artist called um, uh, Ikazi. 
Uh, he was tattooing around about 1908 in Nagasaki, and his flashbooks are amazing. Unfortunately, I can't share them with anybody because I had to like send a letter in advance, get permission to go and see them, go all the way to Nagasaki in the middle of the you know difficult time at the end of the COVID pandemic, get a visa to go and see it. But these amazingly precious books, I'm not allowed to post any online. I hopefully, I, there are some pictures of his work online from a book that's owned by another collector. Um, and hopefully I'll be able to publish some of these. But I, I bring that up only to say that it, as you talk about cultural exchange, so this book in 1908, so the, Japan went to war with Russia in 1904 and, and won that war. So they, they went from a feudal medieval state to basically beating one of the greatest naval superpowers on the planet within a generation. But in his flashbook, there is obviously lots of Japanese designs, um, dragons and flowers um, uh, and, and, and koi and things. But there's also Western-style pinups, Britannias, um, Western pinup women holding flag, Russian flags, French flags. There is also like sort of little comedy tattoos like owls wearing top hats and there's a monkey riding a bicycle. Um so, so the Jap- just just as European tattooers, English tattooers, American tattooers were tattooing sailors coming through the ports, Japanese tattooers were doing that too. And there's a cross-fertilization of design, language, of motif and technique in both directions. Um, it's, a, it's not just a case of kind of cultural appropriation. It is this exchange. And you can see in Southern, some of Southern MacDonald and Tom Riley and other tattooers from this period in America and England in their kit lists, you know, they're using Japanese short-handled hand poke needles alongside electric tattoo machines. They're hybridizing their techniques. Um, so on that technique, I want to quickly read, again, this is from, um, from Gulick's book. He describes how these Japanese tattoos were done. And we're talking really about what Benoit would call hafted handled tattoo needles. So a lot of up to this point in Europe, sailor tattooing was just done with a, you'd hold a needle in your hand and you'd prick it in, or you would wrap some needles together and do it. In Japan, the needles are mounted perpendicular to a haft. So they're not at right angles like a New Zealand tap tool would be. They're kind of basically like on the end of almost like a pencil. And uh, I'll quote here from um, Gulick. The basic and most important Traditional implements the tattooer uses in his work are a personal set of needles. They vary from one single needle point to as many as 30 and are attached to a handle or shaft of wood, ivory, bone, but usually bamboo by means of fine wire or thread. Depending on the number of needles, the thickness of the shaft can amount to 2 centimetres, the length not usually exceeding 20 centimetres. For the tattooing of fine contour lines, no more than just two or three needles are mounted close together on the shaft. In the case of slightly thicker tattoo lines are required, the master will use from 5 to 10 needles attached in the same way. The thicker shafts with 20 to 30 needles are used for the purposes of shading effects. And then the inks is basically black India ink, which is called sumi. Uh, The best sumi is made from soot that is collected in the stone temple lanterns from the light burning on sesame oil. The colours used to fill in spaces are executed in black ink, the other colours are red, green, indigo, and yellow, used quite rarely. Just as pigments used for polychrome woodblock prints, the tattooer's colours originally consisted of vegetal and mineral pigments mixed with diluted rice paste. Various shades could be derived by mixing them together 
Thus, mixed with some black, resulted in a brown, brownish shade called uh, Akazumi. By diluting the sumi with water, a grey shade was derived called Usuzumi, for example, in carp fins. And in prints, indigo was made by boiling old rags, dyed with indigo, a common practice in the Edo period. Mixed with benny, a transparent red, red extracted from a saff flower, this blue can be made into violet. If mixed with seiko, stone yellow, a light green could be obtained. For occasionally, uh, benigara was used, a pigment made from iron sulfate and green vitriol. Because, it's, because of its poisonous components, it was applied sparingly. <laughs> right. Getting your back piece done and just dying. Yeah. So we have basically black, red, and kind of shades of brown and of, of you know, greenish black, bluish, bluish black, um, maybe a bit of yellow on occasion. And, and yeah, this is, you know, this is basically the moment where modern tattooing begins. And it's, it's funny because, you know, as I said, it really suited the Japanese artists to, to present this art as, as ancient. It was only by the time of the Meiji Restoration about 100 years old. Um, yeah, yeah. And like it, yeah, it dovetails like perfectly into where we're at, at this point, where we're now going to start seeing, you know, the widespread adoption of like electric tattoo machines and the westernization of Japan as it goes into, you know, the post war period. And yeah, I think this is a perfect place to end it and pick it up next week. Yeah. So we'll talk about, um, we'll talk next week about, um, the uh, attempts by Dr. Fukushi, who we'll talk a bit about in the interview with Pascal Bagot as well, which you'll hear on the feed. We'll talk about him next week, and then we'll talk about really where Japan's tattoo industry goes underground and becomes really associated um, with with criminality and with y- yakuza, and even struggles through to the present day with with cultural legitimacy. So you know, I think obviously, as we talked about that with with Benoit, the the tattooing prior to to the Meiji Restoration was was it wasn't underground isn't the right way of saying it but it was a kind of you know it was like all arts and crafts something associated with a slightly kind of particular kind of person a particular kind of man uh, or woman and um, but pushing it underground making it illegal these constant attempts to ban it really did increasingly make it difficult for tattooing to survive as an above ground industry. So I mentioned uh, Edward um, Edward VIII. Uh, he came to Japan in 1922 and he wrote in his letter, quote, my chief disappointment is not being able to get tattooed in Japan, but it seems it's been made illegal, though I can't think why. Still under these conditions, I've left it severely alone. Um, but just before we finish up, can you Google image search, Thomas, Edward VIII, Japan, because describing what he looks like, I think, is such a good example of like, oh Christ, how, right? So, so he's wearing what's he, what's he wearing? So in the picture that I'm looking at, he is wearing like a kind of it looks like a ceremonial kimono with a sash around it. He's wearing one of those very stereotypical like rice paddy hats that farmers would wear. He's, oh he's, yeah, there's. A, you look at the other picture of him because he's wearing in one of the other pictures he's wearing a bowler hat. Oh, I'm looking at that. So, yes, he looks yeah. like he looks like he's wearing like a samurai kimono. He has socks and wooden sandals on. He has a bowler hat on. 
He's standing in front and of the- And a wristwatch. And a wristwatch. He's standing in front of the imperial Japanese flag. So this amazing culture clash, right? And for him, like, getting tattooed would be the perfect thing. Yeah. To, like, yeah. Top, off, top off his Japanese streetwear outfit. Oh, mate, right? went to my gap yard in Japan. Yeah, cu- cutting-edge Japanese streetwear, like, Stan Edward VIII. Prince, um, Prince, Prince Edward, to bring it full circle, was the original hipster. Yeah, I mean, he was also kind of a Nazi. We won't go into that. They all were. Yeah. Um, but so by nineteen twenty two, he's left even he's left it well alone. Even edgy, edgy old Edward. Um and yeah, we'll pick that up in the next episode. But I <laughs> yeah, I think I hope I hope you found that interesting, Tom, and whether that, that covered some some stuff that you maybe didn't know before. Oh, it it, it really did. You know, I, I didn't know about the like Horichio and them traveling to places like Malta and everything. It's super fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And like the whole, you know, for about 20 years, the whole world was Jap tattoo world was Japanese as hell. You know, adverts in the British press said things like Jap designs done perfect. Uh, every tattooer was trying to, um, you know, trying to make their studio look oriental. They claimed to have gone to Japan or studied in Japan, even if they might not have done that. Everyone wanted to, to to kind of be as Japanese as possible, you know, even to, as I said, to the point of inviting Japanese artists into their shops, and and it's really a commercial practice, you know, it's a it's as much a it's as much a kind of serious, beautiful art form as it is a a marketing technique, you know, mm-hmm. exactly. So, with that in mind, want to thank you for listening to this third part of our history of Japan series. We have one more left. Uh, if you want to hear more about the history of Japan, check out our Patreon. We, like we said multiple times in this episode, we spoke to Bedwell Robotai about Ukiyo A Prince. We're speaking to Pascal Bajot next week about Akimitsu Tagagi's book, The Tattoo Murder. And yeah, stay tuned for more. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, like I said, we have a Patreon. You can get bonus episodes and episodes like this early for as little as five quid a month. You can find us on Instagram at Beneath the Skin Pod. Same on Twitter. And yeah, thank you very much for listening. Oh, also buy Matt's book. Yeah, buy my book. There's um, if you want to know more about Amy Crocker, about Hori Toyo, about Hori Chio, about the influence of Japan on on English and American tattooing. Um, yeah, there's 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 chapters and and sort of sub chapters all about this stuff in the book. So please pick a copy of that up. Um, all good bookshops. You can subscribe to the Patreon at the uh, £15 a month level for a free copy of the book, plus shipping if you live abroad. And thank you very much. It's goodbye from me. Bye. Bye.